Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. It's been a long and gruelling lockdown for everyone. But for some... It's triggered a pre-existing hell. I felt like there was a massive vacuum that needed to be filled again. Eating disorders love a vacuum. Eating disorders have been on the rise in lockdown, but the stigma and misunderstandings attached to the illness persist, and the consequences are alarming. Anorexia has the highest mortality rate of any mental illness. When I realised that I was anorexic, over time it became a slow suicide attempt. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the invisible epidemic, the rise of eating disorders in the UK. We're going to be talking about some difficult subjects today. Eating disorders, mental illness, even suicidal thoughts. So if any of those are triggers for you, you might want to give this episode a miss. And if you want to talk to someone about any of those issues... We've included the numbers for helplines in the description of this episode. At times during the pandemic, it's felt like diet and exercise, or at least worrying about both, have become a national obsession. Hi folks, I've been doing a lot, in fact everything I can, to uh, lose weight and to feel uh, fitter and healthier. According to reports, Boris Johnson is planning to put the country on a diet to help beat coronavirus. What do you think it's going to do for our relationship with food? I mean, eating less uh, carbs, avoiding chocolate, no more late night cheese, all that kind of thing. I've been getting up early to go for, for runs. That's him doing a press-up, is it? Yeah. Well, it is I'd love to challenge him. Do it, Sarah. And the result is, you know, I actually have lost some weight. Here we go. And then I'm going to lift my leg up, Boris. Can you do this? Get Come you, Sarah. Here we go. Whether it's daily workouts with Joe Wicks or the emphasis on daily walks and the knowledge that COVID seems to hit people worse if they're obese, there has never been a more acute focus on our lifestyles. But what if weight was already an obsession? How does lockdown affect those who are already struggling? Robbed of the social support networks they rely on, for some, the focus on losing weight can take a dark turn. Seeing everybody posting, look how many calories I burnt sort of thing, I'd kind of think, oh, they're doing it, I should go on a run as well. 
That's Lara. She has anorexia and she's found the successive lockdowns really difficult. That's kind of been quite a negative conversation around food. You can't just survive the pandemic. You've got to reinvent yourself. And that's kind of the perfect storm if you don't have the structure of a school day, for example. A couple of weeks ago, Lara sent us an email to Stories of Our Times. The eating disorder has kind of overwhelmed the last two years of my life. I still feel ashamed when I say that I've got an eating disorder. And I think that's wrong. So that's why I came to the podcast. Tell me a bit about your life before the pandemic. I mean, I've always been a little bit anxious and there were kind of flare-ups of anxiety throughout my childhood. But I was a happy child and I was quite outdoorsy. I would climb trees, I'd go and swim rivers. I lived in a supportive family. But despite all of this, I still developed an eating disorder. For Lara, the first signs of her eating disorder appeared whilst she was at university. I was doing well in my studies. I was doing extracurriculars. I was going out. I was having a good time. But the eating was kind of falling away. I still don't really know why. I knew that there was something a bit amiss. For me, it wasn't a will to lose weight or anything. I'd always been quite slim. I didn't have a particularly negative body image or anything. And I think because of that, I didn't really recognise the problem until it got quite bad because I didn't look like I had an eating disorder. I didn't really believe I had one or could have one. I think there are a lot of myths around eating disorders. That's Dr Agnes Ayton. She's the chair of the faculty that focuses on eating disorders at the Royal College of Psychiatrists, as well as a frontline NHS clinician in Oxford. I have been specialising in this field for about 20 years. We got in touch after receiving Lara's email. We wanted to understand the true extent of the problem and also why so much of the coverage of the illness seems to get it wrong. A lot of people with eating disorders feel intensely ashamed of their eating problems. There's also a stigma in the medical profession and the general public that they think that people choose this as a lifestyle choice. The National Health Survey, which was published in December, but analysed data for the year before, so 2019, showed that 16% of adults aged 16 and older screened positive for a possible eating disorder. That's almost 9 million people in the UK. About 60% of them were women and 40%, so 4 million men are screening positive. That's more than twice as many as a similar study found about 12 years ago. So you're talking about a real hidden epidemic. The common myth is that the main eating disorder is anorexia nervosa. Anorexia nervosa, the one you're most likely to see depicted on TV and in films, is characterised by restricted eating, so people starving themselves. But it's not the only type of disorder. It's not even the most common one. The more common eating disorders are bulimia nervosa and uh, binge eating disorder. Bulimia nervosa and binge eating disorder can affect people of any weight, including those who are considered overweight or obese. The preoccupation with weight and shape is, is a central issue. People trying to control their weight. Things like people making themselves sick, 
using various laxatives or diet pills or excessive exercise, which is mainly an issue in bulimia nervosa with loss of control of eating and then various attempts to, to lose weight. And in binge eating disorder is mainly the binging and the loss of control over eating and not so much about the preventing weight gain kind of compensatory behaviors. However, uh, what is common amongst all of these disorders is that people suffering from eating disorder are highly distressed about these difficulties, they're deeply ashamed of their problems. Another thing that many people with eating disorders have in common is an increased risk of premature death. A lot of these deaths could be prevented by timely and early interventions. We do have treatment for these difficulties, but at the moment only a small proportion of the population can access the treatment. Much of the treatment for eating disorders is psychological and therapy-based. It is difficult to understand but it just feels like you don't have an option. It's kind of like someone telling you the sky is green rather than blue. And because it's your own mind, it's very difficult to question what's going on in your own mind. You don't have to act on every thought that ever pops into your head, but when 90% of your thoughts are like this, you're going to buy into one of them. That, according to Dr Ayton, is a key way of recognising that you have a problem. How much space do you have in your head, for example, to think about anything else? How much your self-esteem is linked in with your weight and shape or worry about your body? Do you manage to enjoy other aspects of life or does it intrude into your social life? For Lara, it led to her dropping out of university. She went back home to live with her family, although at the time she thought the main culprit was depression. When I left uni, my world suddenly got so much smaller. The food obsession kind of filled that, what was like the emptiness of everything else. Because I did feel quite empty. I did feel quite low. How bad did it get? I knew it was getting worse when I would struggle to eat anything on my own. I'd have to have my parents there. And when I started throwing away quite a lot of food, or as soon as someone wasn't there, I'd kind of go in the bin and then I'd completely deny it. I never stopped eating entirely. The eating disorder was too manipulative almost. I knew these things, but there was such a disjuncture between knowing and acting. And I'd feel ashamed. I'd be emptying my pockets into my bin. And I'd think, what are you doing? What did your family think? It was impossible for them to do anything about it because unless I changed, nothing was going to change. You can't force someone to eat. My mum would get upset. My dad would get upset. I could see that I was becoming increasingly emaciated, but I confronted that problem by just covering up my mirror with photos of my university friends. And a lot of people would say to me, oh, can you not see the stress and the worry and the fear you're causing your family? And I knew, but that didn't stop the chatter in my head. No matter how much I loved my family, it didn't change anything. And I think that's also something people don't understand. Eventually, Lara sought more help, calling up the eating disorders unit. I cried down the phone and I said, I don't know what to do, I can't live like this. It sounds horrendous. 
And it's so interesting because so many of the images you have of an eating disorder are about image. They are about people wanting to look a certain way. And it's so interesting that you, you'd even covered up your mirror. What do you think was driving you? I still don't know because I'm still being driven by these things. I know I need to get better. I've accepted I have an eating disorder, but I can't do it. The longer you have it as well, the more hardwired these behaviours become. And you actually ended up being hospitalised with it. Tell me about that. How did that happen? Well, things kind of came to a head because I'd gone to the GP a few times and I'd said, I think I'm obsessing about food a bit too much now. I think it might be an eating disorder. I kind of outed myself a bit. And they said, oh, well, come back in a few weeks and see how you feel and we'll refer you on to services. And I got my appointment letter through and it was like for a few months time. It's almost as though part of me drove myself to become worse because I knew it was a problem and because I wanted help, but I couldn't get help until it was critical. Why did it feel like that? Because it's kind of how the service operates. I could have waited till June, but I'm not sure if I still would have been around if I'd continued the way I was going. And wow. I'd, I'd cried down the phone to them and said, please, can I have my appointment changed? And they said, well, if anything comes up, we'll try and move you onwards. But my parents were just so scared by this point because the weight was just falling off me by this point. When the problem is so urgent, you'd think people would get treatment as soon as they wanted it. But that's not the case, as Dr Aiton explains. In a lot of services, people are waiting more than a year, if not longer, for accessing treatment. Some services, even my own, are in a situation when they have to exclude patients because there isn't enough staff. The key issue, she says, is historic underfunding, particularly for adults. And also, the misconception in public health policy that an eating disorder is something you just grow out of naturally. In my service, the length of illness is, is about 10 years or more. Even if people do recover, they might relapse later stage. However, on the positive side, people can get better at any age. You know, we have patients who uh, have recovered after 20, 30 years of illness. So it's important not to lose hope and that people can recover, but it takes time. Lara's mum took her back to a GP and a test showed that Lara was suffering from bradycardia, which means her heart rate had dropped dangerously low. And so they were like, right, no, you're going to hospital now. They kind of just spoke to me because I wasn't refusing food entirely. I never had to be, like, tube-fed or anything. I ate a sandwich when I was there. It was probably the first sandwich I'd had in a while. But I was kind of panicking. Everybody was panicking. But actually, even then, like, my mum on the way said right, you need, to, you need to have breakfast before you go. And so I got like a one of those like cereal bars or something just to like hold me over before I got there. And I still snuck it up my sleeve and I was on the way to A&E. On your way to A&E and you still couldn't bring yourself to eat? Yeah. I mean, in hindsight, it's crazy. Anybody could see it was crazy, but I was still compelled to do it. I went there, they spoke to me, they gave me a bit of a meal plan and then it was kind of like, well, off you go. (laughs) But for the state I was in, I should have just been kept in hospital in hindsight, I think. 
And I think maybe if it was hit on the head early, then my chances of going back to uni would have been a lot higher. As an outpatient, things continued to get worse for Lara. Eventually, she decided to access a day unit at the local psychiatric hospital, and that was a turning point. Because you were kind of in a community of people doing the same thing, that you knew were kind of going through the same things, it became easier. She was only planning to stay for two weeks, but two weeks turned into six months. The journey to recovery isn't always a straight line, and Lara is still on hers. Coming up, how eating disorders affect men. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. I remember I'd start weighing myself at the sort of start of the day, pretty standard, you know, a lot of people do that. That's Dave Chawner. He's telling me about his experience of an eating disorder. Like Lara, he was anorexic. And then as I started doing that, I started weighing myself sort of midday. So I'd like run home from school and I'd weigh myself midday and that would inspire me to eat less. And then as I went through school, I'd have more free periods. So then I'd nip home sort of two, three times a day in order to weigh myself. Um, and I think that was the thing with the anorexia. It was a constant chipping away at. I would try to live on 
X amount of calories per day. And then if I did that for a week, I'd be like, well, you know what? I can do that. Let's, let's go a little bit further. Let's knock another 200 calories off that. And it was exactly the same with exercising. You know, I've done so many miles, so many steps, so many lengths in the pool this week. I'm going to do more, more, more. And that was just how it manifested. Dave uses this experience of living with an eating disorder in his work. I am a stand-up comic, I'm an author, and I'm a presenter. He runs a comedy course designed for people recovering from mental health difficulties, especially eating disorders. He's also written a book about it. Because it was about anorexia, originally we wanted to call the book The Real Hunger Games, uh, but apparently we weren't allowed that as a title, so it's called Weight Expectations. Tell me about your anorexia. How did it first manifest itself? It sort of became something that developed over time. It all sort of started off quite simply for me. I started losing weight to do this terrible school play. This weird thing happened as I started to lose weight. People kept on congratulating me. It kept on saying, you look good, well done. And I thought, well, if I'm getting all of this positive affirmation for losing weight, then putting on weight must be bad. But then also behind the scenes, I started dating this girl and... I, I really enjoyed my school, I really enjoyed my life, I loved my family, my friends, where I lived, and that all had a sell-by date because I was moving away to university. I couldn't really use words to explain all the anxiety that was building up, so I guess subliminally I used my body to show that there was something wrong with my brain. There were aspects of his eating disorder that Dave quite enjoyed, something you don't often hear. I really enjoyed the fact that it helped numb my testosterone, the fact that it helped numb my sex drive. That was great. I'm not glorifying, promoting or encouraging disordered eating in any way, shape or form, but I think it's quite naive to overlook the short term and they are short term benefits that have a mm. longer term detrimental effect. So I didn't think it was an eating disorder for, for a long, 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 long time because what I was doing seemed enjoyable. And all of the stories that I'd read, heard or seen were always sort of saying, oh, this terrible person is really, you know, beside themselves and they want to get out. Whereas I didn't want to get out. I enjoyed it. But the eating disorder was taking its toll. I was very irrational. I was very up and down. My concentration was absolutely shot. I couldn't focus on anything for any time. My memory to boot was absolutely terrible. I was constantly mm. cold. So I was taking two, three uh, showers a day. And these were little things, but as they creep up on you and become your normality, you don't really realise it's strange at the time. When he was 19... Dave was working at a boarding school and things were not going well. I started restricting, started trying to avoid meals. I was coffee loading. I couldn't sleep at night, so I was setting my alarm to do laps around the campus. I was having nightmares wow. about food. I was constantly pinching my stomach. And one of the teachers came up to me and she sort of said, look, I've had bulimia and I've been in therapy three or four times. Have you ever thought that you might be anorexic? And that was the first time anyone asked me rather than told me. So I suppose that was the first time that I realised that I'd got a problem. But I didn't do anything about it for literally years after that because I never felt anorexic enough. 
you can't talk about eating disorders without talking about how people are missed for treatment. So I thought, well, what's the point in even getting help? Because services are obviously so overstretched because I can't read about them without hearing about how terribly we do with eating disorders. There's no point in even trying to engage with services. When I realized that I was anorexic, over time, it became a slow suicide attempt. I knew that anorexia has the highest mortality rate of any mental illness. I actually didn't want to engage in treatment. I never thought that I would engage in treatment. And over time, I started writing the, the letters for my niece when I died and sort of even the little mundane God, things. Were, that, seemed, that seemed like a better option then. Oh, hugely. Absolutely. It was, you know, I started, I mean, even odd things of like, I'd, I'd put like my bank account number and stuff in my drawer so that I knew that when hopefully, you know, the way that I was going would, you know, people would be going through my drawers, they'd find it and they go, oh, that makes it a lot easier. And genuinely, the idea of living was a lot more intimidating and terrifying to me than the thought of dying. I, I genuinely didn't want to carry on. There are certain metrics that the NHS used to section you under the Mental Health Act. And I knew that if I kept myself above those metrics, I could still successfully die without having to be force fed. So I kind of like took that sort of upon, wow. upon my, my sort of self. How did you manage to break out of that cycle? So I went to the GP and I said, look, I want to be treated for depression not the anorexia and I got referred further and further up the chain to different people and it was a, a woman at Lambeth Talking Therapies at the end of the day I think she was just frustrated and absolutely fair play to her I would have been I would have been banging the wall but she said to me and gave me a little bit of tough love she said bottom line you wouldn't expect your laptop to work if you don't charge it you cannot expect your brain to work if you don't feed it and I remember that being a real world analogy that I could comprehend and I realized that I faced this kind of dichotomy of either I continue on the track that I'm on but I would isolate myself even further or I decide to turn everything around start afresh and rebuild and then I decided to engage in treatment and I was incredibly lucky that I was diagnosed as severely clinically anorexic. I had fast track treatment through the Maudsley Hospital in South London and went through two and a half years of outpatient treatment, which I still feel guilty about. It was incredible and amazing. And the only thing that I can do is order to try and pay that forward to people that, you know, perhaps might not be as lucky to get such incredible treatment. For both Lara and Dave, the misconceptions around eating disorders have had a big impact on their lives and their attempts to recover. I think there's this misconception that if you have an eating disorder, you must eat very, very little, and that's not necessarily the case people think that you don't think about food which is kind of an ironic thing to have because as soon as you say you know if I said to you you know don't push that red button you know, that's <laughs> the first thing that you you want to do All you isn't it? can think about yeah and it's exactly the same with food as soon as you can't have it you think about it more which is why like actually anorexics tend to be amazing chefs amazing caterers people that love really? and live it. oh yeah the amount of people that have won bake-off or been in the finals of bake-off that have come out as having eating disorders is, is astonishing it is rife within the catering industry within chefs also within sports people as well one of the big misconceptions, and we mentioned it earlier, is the idea that eating disorders don't affect men. The first diagnosed 
anorexic that we ever know of was Richard Morton. It was a man. You've got people like Uri Geller, you've got Freddie Flintoff, you've got Elton John, you've got Russell Brand. They have all had eating disorders in the 1600s. Byron himself very famously had uh, anorexia for years and used to go to uh, Buller and Bollinger's uh, wine merchants in, in Covent Garden to weigh himself two, three times a day. He's very open about his anorexia. Let's not forget that in the 12th, 13th century, you also had, they used to call them the starving saints. The Romans had the vomitarians, which is by today's standards, essentially binge eating. And that was all, all yeah. led by men. So there's a lot of, I, I suppose, misconceptions that just get handed on, you know, down and down and down. A common myth that Dr. Aiton encounters in her patients is the idea that people somehow brought the illness on themselves, that the illness is some kind of lifestyle choice, and so some patients feel that they don't deserve treatment. That is quite a common response, that they are somehow to be blamed for their illness. I think quite a lot of families feel somehow that they are to blame. But science would appear to disagree. There's been recognition recently that there is a biological vulnerability for eating disorders. There have been some recent genetic studies which showed that um, apart from uh, psychological problems, you know, various metabolic factors can actually increase the risk for eating disorders. So this is a new area of research because up till now we haven't really taken that into account into our treatment because of the the idea that it's a lifestyle choice. Quite often, even professionals kind of miss the risk of suicide or the various medical complications. For that very reason, the faculty Dr. Aiton works for is keen to link up with Public Health England so that the public message on eating disorders can be improved. If we have seen a kind of 226% increase in the last 12 years, we can't wait another 12 years to see what happens. I think we need to act now. For Lara, her focus right now is on lockdown. People talk about a kind of sense of Groundhog Day in lockdown, the sense that every day is repeating itself. If you're trying to actively yeah. break habits, but your behavioural cues are the same every single day, it's very difficult to break these things. You seem to be in a much better place now than you were at your lowest ebb. But it's still something that's there in the background. It's still, it's still got enough of a hold over my life that if I wanted to go to university now, I couldn't. Because it's, it would just really? run away unintentionally again. So... Again, I'm in this no man's land, which is okay during a pandemic. Lots of people's lives have kind of been put on pause. But as soon as lives are put back on to play, my life will stay on pause. And that's not a very nice situation to be in. If you found this episode difficult, you can access support by calling the Samaritans on 116 123. And if you want to know more, for yourself or for a loved one, you can contact BEAT, the UK's eating disorder charity. Their website is beateatingdisorders.org.uk.
You can also try Hub of Hope, the UK's leading mental health support database, which helps you connect with the support services in your area. That's hubofhope.co.uk. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests today, Dave Chawner, stand-up comedian, presenter, and author of Weight Expectations. We also heard from Chair of the Faculty of Eating Disorders at the Royal College of Psychiatrists, Dr Agnes Ayton, and, of course, Lara, who shared her experience of an incredibly difficult subject. She alerted us to it by getting in touch, and if you'd like to do the same, then please do drop us an email at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. The producer today was Leona Hamid. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Carla Patella. See you tomorrow. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.